Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Greetings, OFAD lads and lasses. This is Andrew Smith, co-host of Once for All Delivered. We are in our last week, for now, looking at the best of Bob. Today we're actually going to look at the rest of Bob. This was the last session we ever had for Bobcast. We recorded it last June, intending to release it, and then after we recorded it, we decided, you know what, we're ready for change of pace, change of direction, Uh, and so we didn't release it and instead went back to the drawing board working on rebranding, restructuring the show that would later emerge that fall as Once for All Delivered. So this material never got released. It kind of got caught up in all of that. So now we are going to go ahead and release it. It actually kind of uh, points to where we're going. It gets into issues of uh, Bob Inc.'s theology of church-state relations, of sphere sovereignty, things of that sort. And so a lot of what you hear will probably sound familiar if you've been with us since we relaunched as OFAD. Uh, But anyway, so that's what we're releasing this week is the rest of Bob. Now, as far as where we're at with the show, uh, we're through the chaos of April, and so next week we're planning on being back with a live show, tentatively called The Law of God and the Transgender Crisis. Relatively self-explanatory, but we're planning to go live. It will be Tuesday night, May 2nd? Yeah, May 2nd at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time, U.S. Central Time. So... Uh, we hope you'll join us for that. We will be live streaming it on the OFAD YouTube channel. So that's youtube.com slash, and then the at sign OFAD podcast. It's our same handle as we use on social media. So if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube, you'll want to get on that because uh, we're planning on doing more of these live shows and that's where they'll be live is on YouTube. And then if you don't catch them there, they'll go to our podcast feed and all the other usual channels as well. But anyway, so that's where we're at. That's where we're going. And uh, we hope you enjoy the rest of Bob on the kingdom of God, the highest good. This is Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hello, Bob Squad. We are back or something. It took us three tries before actually remembering that we needed to hit a record button. I think maybe we're a little rusty or something. Yeah, we kind of forgot how to do this. Yeah, where are we? Um, where are we? Like, in the world? Welcome to Machencast. Machencast. Yeah. So I'm in Wyoming. Um, I finished up my time in Minnesota, headed back there. Uh, seems like a pilgrimage I make about every summer. I end up in Wyoming and end up <laughs> recording some Bobcast out here. Deja vu. Uh, but yeah, 
looking for a call, you know, seeking God's will and what comes next. Been uh, looking at various churches. And yeah. Yeah. Caleb, what are you doing? Well, that's also a good question. I have no idea. It is. You graduated. <laughs> I, I did. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. I'm doing things now. So <laughs> now we're in the same place. We're all very. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still here in yeah. the same place in, uh, in Illinois, interning with Oakland United Reformed Church. Uh, and while studying and, and writing, uh, for, uh, my candidacy exams, uh, in the September classes. So not much has actually changed. I'm just not being like directly graded at the moment. Yeah, but you will be. But I will be. Good old candidacy exam. That's right. So what are we going to talk about? We're going to ease in on a nice, easy, non-controversial topic. Taxes. Right? <laughs> Inflation. Yes. The economy. Yeah, why not? In a certain sense, these do actually relate. We've been kicking around various ideas, very t various topics to take up and discuss, and we've decided to start a new series, um, sort of like we did last summer with Covenant Theology. Um, we want to do a kind of extended series on a particular subject that we think is relevant and we think would be helpful. This one, the... The name, I guess you could say, is the Kingdom of God. We're looking at Bavink and uh, related teachers and their perspective on the Kingdom of God. But when we talk about the Kingdom of God, we're getting into issues of ethics. We're getting into issues of practical application of Scripture to life, including public life, including societal engagement, including government and society at large. So ethics as just what we do morally, right? What right. we're supposed to do morally. Uh, how do we live? It's uh. So do, are there principles by which people should live by? And for that matter, then, uh, if Christians are not of the world um, and have the knowledge of God, then uh, how is the Christian supposed to live? Uh, so ethics are is is our response to God. As Bobbing says, else right. somewhere. And I think we're, I think we are experiencing in our day, in our present moment, something of a crisis regarding ethics and particularly ethics as lived out in public, in, in life in relation to the rest of the world. We have a lot of confusion. We have a lot of, uh, ways in which the culture is pressing in on the church is pressing in on Christians, and there's been so many different competing ideas about how Christians should respond, how they should handle this, and not a lot of clarity. You have, you have on one hand, people who uh, take an approach that we need to basically acquiesce, we need to assimilate, we need to, in the interest of being winsome and missional, uh, go along with the world in various ways. On the other hand, we have approaches that say we basically need to, like, separate ourselves from the world, withdraw from the world, not be interested 
in the world and what the world has to say. And there's varying degrees of this. I mean, you know, you do have like forms of groups that actually separate from the world, but then you have a light form where people take an approach more along the lines of, well, the gospel is primary. The gospel is what matters. And then so nothing else really matters. Um, there's just a lot of different perspectives. And on the flip side, you get like, almost like theocratic approaches. We're seeing a rise again in theonomy. Um, the idea that the Mosaic law should be implemented and applied across society. Uh, you see forms of, we'll call it neo-Kyperian triumphalism. The idea that we're going to redeem this world. We're going to redeem this society into some sort of utopian golden age. Uh, so there's a lot of different perspectives and a lot of confusion. And I think at this point, with all the issues and problems we're seeing in our world now, a lot of Christians that are just left scratching their heads, wondering what to do. And Bavink dealt with some of these issues, and we think he did so in helpful ways, him and some of his peers. And so we want to take some time this summer and look at that. Right. So if we put it into the question or a couple of questions that Bob Inglund wants to look at uh, related to this topic is simply, uh, what is good? I mean, this is a question that everybody really asks, uh, what is good and what is right? And for that matter, then, if there is any good at all, uh, as opposed to things that are evil or bad, if if there is any good or good action, good intents, is there a highest good, a greatest good? Uh, what is the what is an ideal good? Can there be such a thing? Uh, and if so, then how do I do it, and why do I do it? Uh, and so this is this is virtually what uh, we're going to especially be speaking of here today in uh, in uh, an introductory section um, of Bobbing's essay. Now, I want to read just a fast uh, footnote here, just uh, so you know where it's from. Uh, so the title of what we're going to be working through is The Kingdom of God, The Highest Good. Uh, this is translated by Nelson uh, Klosterman. Um, you can find it in the 2011 publication of the Bob Inc. Review on uh, the Bob Inc. Institute's website. Uh, and the footnote there just... Uh, just notes that this was originally written uh, or delivered as a lecture uh, at the Theological School in Kampen uh, in 1881. And so you can get further information on the origin of this lecture there in that little uh, that note. And we'll link it in the show notes. It is available for free online so that you can get it and look at it and follow it along. That'll be our probably main source as we do this study. We'll be incorporating some other sources from Bavink, uh, some historical and theological analysis of Bavink, as well as some of Bavink's peers. So uh, guys like Abraham Kuyper, for instance, we'll, you'll be hearing some about him. That is correct. Well, so let's, let's go ahead and uh, jump in here then. And relating to our topic, and I suppose why, why, uh, this is so important, or why this topic of the kingdom of God is so important today. Uh, Bob, uh, pardon me, Bob, Andrew. Andrew has already noted yes. that there is uh, ethics. Yes, you just got uh, confused for Bob. Congratulations. Well done. Hey, I'm in good company. That's right. Herman Smith. With a Y. With a, with a Y. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Andrew Bavink. Um, yeah, you had, you had already said, Andrew, that, uh, 
there we have something of a problem with an understanding of ethics today. Um, and really, there, there's this is something that's kind of always been the case. Like, what actually is good? This, this is an ancient, uh, perennial, continuous search for what is good, what is right, what is true, etc. Bobbing though begins in noting that uh, this this very thing in his day there had been just prior to his time uh, kind of detached uh, estranged concept of of uh ethics but there was something of a revival in his time right um a lot of the struggles and issues of modernity were coming to bear in a lot of ways some similar to today christianity was starting to feel a lot of pressure there was the rise of the old protestant liberalism teachers like schleiermacher who we've talked about before issues like darwinian evolution coming to bear and so a lot of pressure on the church from the world and Bob Inc. and others seeking to navigate through this. Yeah, he says here in this uh, this very first introductory paragraph that there was uh, towards the bottom of that paragraph that uh, people began to uh, become curious about the moral life and attempt to clarify uh, and note these uh, three words here, uh, attempt to clarify its nature, its principle, and its essence. So... What is it, uh, and why do you live it? He, he explains that formerly the discipline of ethics received sparse attention, so it was a little bit more of a, a certain abstract concept in some ways in philosophies, consisting mostly of explaining uh, virtues and duties. So again, uh, what is right and how to do it what is, is is proper so when we look at virtues and duties what we're essentially talking about is like what are good qualities what are good traits and good actions that someone can engage in so when you're thinking virtues a good example of this would be like if you look at any of our reform catechisms and their exposition of the law in fact, if you uh, look at Zacharias or Sinus's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism and you look at his sections on the Ten Commandments, you will find that this is something for each commandment he goes through and he lists vices and virtues. So what are the good things that this commandment encourages? What are the bad things that it prohibits? Not just as far as actions, but even just like dispositions and as far as the sort of life that we live. And this had been pretty much the historic study of ethics. It had been very much, you know, these making lists, virtues, vices, applications thereof. Right. And this is uh, virtues and duties together could uh, perhaps also be then be then uh, summarized in the word uh, morality, uh, a doctrine of morality, uh, the conceiving and doing of, of virtues and duties. So when Bavink comes on the scene... He's essentially looking for a more holistic approach, an approach that's not so much just about these lists of virtues and duties, but he's interested in their interconnectedness, how virtues and duties and such relate to the kind of people that we are and all of life in this world, how they connect to us and how they connect to the world around us. Um, this is very you know, consistent with the neo-Calvinist project that he and others were a part of, um, seeking Christ's lordship over all things and trying to reconcile that with the modern world. Yes, and this is the, uh, this is, again, that, 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 uh, neo-Calvinist, uh, in 
very Bavinkian theme of uh, the organism. It's the living in this life system. You'll hear the term uh, world and life view typically utilized in this way. Um, so he'll, he'll bring the word uh, organic or organism in here uh, on occasion. Um, what's interesting is, though, when, when he speaks of this living out uh, or, or, or better understanding uh, a godly concept of uh, morality, this, this holistic approach that Andrew mentions, this is, this is part of the, the, the matter of ethics where we might theorize and whatnot. Uh, but where, what, what is our source of that theory? How do we understand these things? Well, Bavink notes here, um, <clears throat> in a second paragraph on page uh, 134, uh, he notes that perhaps the most influential theologian of the 19th century was Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, who was both uh, deeply misunderstood and too highly esteemed, and that it was he who identified the flaw of uh, of an anemic concept of ethics and the anemic uh, doctrine of ethics. And he ended up contributing a complete and revision and an enduring benefit to the discipline of ethics. Schleimacher was a, is a theological liberal. There, there were uh, a lot of things that have become a consequence uh, in how uh, schools do theology now, if you will, almost as a, a subjective religious studies department. Um, but Bavink does take some beneficial concepts of Schleiermacher, uh, of Schleiermacher, pardon me, why am I saying Schleiermacher? <laughs> Schleiermacher. He takes some... Yeah, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> he takes some helpful concepts of Schleiermacher. And <laughs> that's funny. Uh, he takes some, some helpful concepts of uh, uh, Schleiermacher and employs them in service of theology and of his uh, concept of ethics. Now, Schleiermacher basically had an emphasis on uh, finding the the nature, essence, and unity um, of the soul uh, of of living by examining the inner self. Okay, this is where we get this, this idea of this phrase of self consciousness. By discerning self consciousness, you find the nature and essence of unity of who you are of the soul. So an inward understanding and experience of the self. But Bavink is using also a, an Augustinian concept, though, of personhood. Uh, Augustine was, if you will, the first psychologist, the first one to examine, really, uh, to create a system of an understanding of the soul and mind and how that relates to the person. There, there's an Augustinian motif in Bavink uh, in which he sees the knowledge of the inward man as the source of all things that he is and does. So, and you look inside to, to discern the reflection of God, reflections uh, of God in the Imago Dei. Okay? Man is a mirror in order to make known, he, he acts as a mirror to make known the attributes of God uh, in, in small part. So by combining Augustine, you look uh, with Schleiermacher, you look inwards. Uh, there's a self, you, you examine who you are in self-consciousness in light of who God is. And this is also very much like Calvin, if you were to read the ins his intro to the Institutes. In order for man to really properly know himself, he must first know God. Yeah, and then we even go back to our... Uh, early in our study of wonderful works of God, where Bavink's laying out his theology of knowledge, basically, uh, he does some very similar things there. 
Now, another issue that Bob Inc. is, uh, and really sort of the core issue that he's taking up, uh, you can look at this article, The Kingdom of God, The Highest Good, near the bottom of page 134, is he's wanting to get at the relationship between heavenly and earthly goods. Now, these are categories that I think come pretty naturally to us that we think about, you know, uh, spiritual matters and temporal matters, basically these two categories of things. Uh, the problem that Bavink is seeing in his day, um, they're often looked at alongside each other, but their interrelatedness is not plumbed, he says in one place. So basically, um, he talks about how there has been, had been an optimism, a hope for a glorious future for Christianity and such. But then when that failed, when that didn't happen, people have sort of just resigned themselves to uh, earthly goods, earthly pleasures. And then he gives us a very important line uh, on the top of page 135. And I think this maybe is a diagnosis of a lot of the issues that we see in our day when he talks about the relationship between earthly and heavenly goods, or he also speaks of them as this life and the life to come. He says, people have come to resolve this challenge most simply by insisting that one side of this relationship does not exist. So what is he talking about there? He's talking about when we look at earthly and heavenly goods or this life and the life to come, uh, there is a tendency, and we see this in a lot of the issues and even some of the problems in our day I mentioned earlier, to either to basically overly prioritize one at the expense of the other. So what does this look like? Well, on one side, if we prioritize earthly goods, if we prioritize this life, then what we're left with is that triumphalism. We're left with attempts to save and redeem this world. You see this in theonomy, as I already mentioned a certain strand of neo-Kyperianism that seeks to be more triumphalistic and utopian. Uh, you even see this in Marxism, which is pressing in on the church in a lot of ways through applications of critical theory and things of that sort, where they're basically trying to save this world and trying to emphasize the good of this world, and that often comes at the expense of the emphasis on the world to come. But then on the flip side, there's a tendency where if we prioritize only the heavenly goods and the spiritual goods and the life to come, we neglect this world. We basically leave this world. Uh, there's a tendency towards, you could call it world flight. Uh, the idea where we basically don't care about the world, don't engage in the world, separate from the world. You see this in pietism. You see this in historically in things like Anabaptism, where they were very much about withdrawing from the world. And you even see this in certain modern articulations of the two kingdoms doctrine, where basically because the spiritual is primary and because the heavenly is primary, we kind of are just indifferent, I guess, to this world and what's going on in it and, and what life in this world is like. And broadly, um, this is also simply a uh, just secularist tendency. Uh, to de-emphasize the uh, spiritual aspects. As Bobbink was speaking about on the page prior, in, in the very last paragraph of 134, uh, it's, it's also just a turn away from God in order to focus on the things in this world. All this is a modern issue. Uh, all of this is a postmodern in, perhaps we could say hyper-postmodern, present 
issue, uh, but it's also a an issue of fallen man and this this fallen order. You see this very much in scripture as a theme in Paul of of addressing you know addressing those who live according to, uh, as live as those who you know only see them really as 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 residents of this present age, this present evil age. You know they 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 have perhaps you could say either an over realized eschatology. Uh, or an underrealized eschatology. They don't understand that they have their foot in the age to come already and, and are already making a movement towards it in the guiding of the spirit. And the, the kingdom is already present in them. That they belong to a different age and different order. But at the same time, there's another foot in the world that is passing away. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a constant issue. Um, where are we looking? To what age are, uh, is our sight fixed upon? And so this is sort of the problem in the backdrop against which Bob Inc. sets the rest of this essay. And it really is sort of the core issue when we start to talk about the kingdom. And so he sets out his thesis, and it is the title of this essay, that the kingdom of God is the highest good. Now, on the surface, I think anyone would hear that statement, any Christian would hear that statement and say, sure, yeah, I would I would agree with that. The kingdom of God is the highest good. The difficulty and the disagreement is in the details. Well, when we say the kingdom of God is the highest good, what for one, what are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? Some conceive of the kingdom of God as being strictly reduced to the church, that only the church is the kingdom of God, and anything outside is either neutral or adversarial. On the flip side, if you get into more like triumphalistic and, and theocratic views, then everything is the kingdom of God. And so, yeah, the, the big question that this raises, if the kingdom of God is the highest good, what is the kingdom of God? And then if it is the highest good, what does that mean for us? Well, and, and simply in what his, his big burden right here, uh, you know, is, is basically how this whole idea is just so contrary to everything, to a worldliness, to worldly life. Uh, that's why it is this kingdom of God. I, I love that next paragraph that he does here. He, he speaks of it as a uh, as this this idea of a kingdom of God, a genuinely biblical and, uh, and specifically Christian concept that could never have grown in pagan soil. He notes that all of its elements are things foreign to to paganism uh to any other to any other form of religion but the, this this portion right here especially the value and significance of personality remains unknown and comprehended so wh what is a person do we really understand the remarkability of of that statement of the concept of personhood he continues the individual personal has no unique purpose but appears as a mere means and instrument for the group there, the individual is a means for a larger group, a, almost a utilitarian sense. And thus, the pagan worldview lacks the concept of humanity as a single interrelated organism and could never come up with the idea of a kingdom in which both the individual and the group would develop their full identities. Moreover, the religious moral life was tied most closely with political life and never attained in uh, independence in, in the pagan no notion. So this is simply the idea of the, the you might know as the one of the many or the, the 
particulars and universals, which we've spoken of in the past. How do you actually relate the individual with this world around them? Because... To put it summarily, to put it briefly, he remarks on paganism that paganism, it, it falls on one of two sides. The highest good is either individualistic or it is communistic. And I mean, you can even see this today. You see people, you see movements, you see ideologies that are sort of hyper individualistic. It's all about the individual, individuals' rights individuals property and responsibilities and that sort of things but then on the flip side you see a tendency towards communism i mean we've seen entire communist systems of government uh we see the hundred million plus that that died as a result of attempts to implement communist governments but even just uh, more general ideas of well we don't live individualistically we live for society and you know, this is where we get ideas like the redistribution of wealth and these kinds of things in the political sphere, um, where the individual was downplayed and uh, and almost lost at the expense of, of trying to serve the group, serve the community. So with that, you have like a, this idea of highest good uh, as basically um, uh, being able to uh, in communism, for example, being able to express one's individuality, personhood, one's one's agency, uh, purpose as a person, uh, trying to express that through, okay, labor and for having that labor uh, have value and meaning. So trying to give value and meaning to life uh, by by working, laboring for the greater common good. But uh, Bobbing gives examples historically uh, saying that Aristotle pursued the highest good of just happiness uh, of an individual. Uh, Stoics, uh, just live according to your nature. Epicurus, live your desires. Uh, and even Plato, most interesting of all, he says, delve deeply into the essence of good as a release from, basically release from the material, release from the senses uh, self-denial, elevating to a true, pure, ideal being achieved through the reign of philosophy, realized in the state. So, so all this saying that there is a material worldly uh, focus uh, or complete denial of uh, the worldliness uh, for some kind of abstract idea, some kind of a uh, vague spirituality. You see dualism, yeah. uh, particularly when dealing with Plato, which pervades so much of things. And uh, there's actually, there's an article in the last Confessional Presbyterian Journal by Ron Gleason that we're probably going to talk about some as we uh, work through this. But he takes up some of those issues as it pertains to Bob Inc. And if you want to jump ahead of us, you can grab a copy of that, and it's very helpful. Just to underline um, uh, this, this, this concept here in, in, in Plato really how also worthy this question is, um, is his interest. How close Plato in some manners got as just a, a, a rationalist? Um, what is the essence of good? You know, what is, uh, what is it to be elevated to true, pure, ideal being? Hey, th those are some really uh, remarkable concepts. What is it to be, right? What is it to exist? Um, and in some ways, this is also where, what, I mean, what Bob Inc. is trying to highlight here. What is the highest good? Uh, what is it to exist, but, and, and why? Um, 
And he, he points out that uh, this has been a this is a failed idea for uh, paganism. There's always going to be a failed answer um, unless you seek first the kingdom of God, which is revealed by God. He summarizes it this way. He said, basically, none of the ancients, so talking about Plato and Aristotle and all of these aforementioned figures of philosophy, basically, none of the ancients got beyond a morality of utility and calculation. The notion of a kingdom of God that fosters the development of both individual and community, that is both the content and the goal of world history, encompassing the whole earth and all nations, such an idea arose in neither head nor heart of any of the noblest of the pagans. So for all the things that they gave us, for all of the areas where it seems like they got close, uh, they could never get this idea. They could never wrap their minds around such a concept of the kingdom of God that we see unfold uh, in the community of special revelation which we get to here momentarily. And so can you resolve a dualism? Um, or on the other end, can you resolve a pantheism? This idea of trying to reconcile what the sense of oneself uh, in relation to your neighbor, to another person, or to a group of people, or to this world around you is uh, in a very, very remarkable theme uh, of neo-calvinism like we said and this is again where we get to the organic concept okay the, the living concept now um here's where bobbing then draws out uh the significance of the kingdom of god in the history of redemption starting with old testament israel um so while this was this this issue of understanding your life in relation to uh the world around you uh this was this was not the case for Israel, which basically served as a as a display of the kingdom of God in history, as as Bobbing summarizes here throughout the bottom of page uh, one thirty six uh, and uh, the top of one thirty seven. Says that this is this was its remarkable feature uh, that it was a basically a historical uh, manifestation. Uh, in which this kingdom of Israel foreshadowed uh, the kingdom of God through its uh, existence, through its people, through its its government, through its worship, its culture, everything about it. But we must note, it is a foreshadowing. It is not the highest realization. So, for instance, we would say uh, against theonomy and those who would like to re-implement something of a mosaic system that... That no, this is this is not the highest realization. This is the type. This is the foreshadow. This is the mechanism by which God prepares the way for the ultimate realization of the kingdom of God, which comes later. Well, that and it was also uh, as Bobby basically is speaking of here, uh, the nation of Israel as a theocracy. Uh, that that was its very nature, uh, and its its uh, that was its whole. It's, it's essence and purpose here. Um, at the bottom of page 136, uh, second to last uh, sentence, he notes that this this theocracy, uh, he, he says in this theocracy, the kingdom of God was enclosed within the narrow boundaries of the national state. The national state in a matter uh, was, was a, the type for the kingdom of God, the foreshadow, right? But it was not a unique sphere alongside the state and alongside culture. That's, that's the difference with... In, replications in 
in medieval theocracy and what would also be a, a replication in theonomy. The reconstruction is not the real thing. He says, no, the, 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 this, this foreshadowing of the kingdom of God in the national boundaries, uh, in the national state, existed within them and included them, exercising dominion over all the rest. It was entirely necessary as simply what it was. That's how it was ordered. That was its heart. It was an organic institution. And so one thing you see that is the feature of Israel, uh, what is distinctive about Israel, is they are in almost every way, in almost every area of life, they are separated from the nations. They are separated from the pagans. And Bavin gives several examples of this. Uh, for instance, he talks about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a concept rather unique to Israel, that they would take a day each week for set aside for worship and rest, whereas among the pagans, you know, that was yet another day for work, yet another day for trade. He also talks about a, a more overarching idea for Israel that they were to recognize and they live their lives as those that were resting in and dependent on God. Uh, they trusted in God to meet their needs they trusted in god to you know even fight their battles for them early on obviously there was deterioration and decay along those lines but you compare that with the pagans the pagans often viewed themselves over and against nature they were trying to conquer nature as opposed to being dependent on god and you even look at like pagans and their gods and and how the pagans interacted with their gods it's often you know, you could think of like how and why they did sacrifices and how and why they had the gods they did. It was sort of a, they try to manipulate the gods. They try to appease the gods. They try to convince these gods who are not good, but are more capricious and uh, self-serving to, to help them in some way. So it's just an entirely different, you could say, worldview to use the term that's present in Israel than from the surrounding nations. It's an entirely different idea of life. So that's their being set apart, uh, being consecrated as, as a kingdom of priests, um, was their, their function and their purpose, their nature. And even as, um, as Bobbing puts it, Israel's destiny lay embedded in the requirement to be holy as God is holy. And they do that through the knowledge of God as those made in the image of God, those who are to, mirror uh, to reflect godliness in their worldview and, and way of life. Uh, and yet at the same time, where this is a set-apart, a separated nation so so different uh, than the, the pagan world around them, uh, Bobbing also notes that there is also something of a, uh, a universality about uh, the Israel as a people of God, a universal historical power as he puts it uh, at the bottom of the first paragraph on page 137. He says that from the very beginning, the kingdom of God possessed a universal scope um, because Israel's God was the God of all peoples. So even then, Israel was to see, you know, man as one humanity, and they were they had, they had a mission to go and usher in the nations uh, to join into Israel. Uh, but they failed at that and they, they, they became rather uh, secluded. They became very centered against uh, other peoples. And you also start to see a division, a distinction forming between God's kingship and 
Israel's kingship, Israel's theocracy. Um, Boving says on page 137, often kingship in Israel became an instrument for opposing theocracy. So you see, you know, in the time of the judges, God would fight their battles for them. God would rule over them and govern them. He'd raise up judges when they needed them to face particular crises. But ultimately, God was their king. Well, then come the time of Samuel, the people want a king like the nations, because in a certain sense, they want to be like the nations. And so uh, they ask Samuel for a king. God tells Samuel to grant their request. Um, but also in doing so, they have rejected God. Now, uh, Boving says Samuel resolved this by making Israel's kingship an instrument of God's rule. So when Saul was anointed king, there was the book of the law that was written and it was laid up uh, in the place of the Lord, showing that the king's authority was subservient and subject to God's rule and authority. But it becomes pretty clear early on that this ideal is not going to be realized. In fact, it is often the kings that lead the people astray, especially once the kingdoms divide. The northern kings, the kings of Israel, lead that entire nation, save a remnant, uh, but leads the entire nation into apostasy and false worship almost unanimously. And then even in the southern kingdom of Judah, among the kings of the line of David, there are frequently evil kings who lead the people astray. There's occasional periods of revival, uh, but ultimately the theocracy ends up being sort of the means by which uh, the kingship opposes theocracy and that it opposes God's rule over that nation. And then this ultimately produces the exile. And so this is something that not because the institution then uh, if you're getting what Andrew's saying there, the institution isn't what's a problem, but it's it's simply that there is the antithesis. It's a principle, uh, an antithesis of principle. It's it's not uh, an absolute division between simply earthly and heavenly, but a, a spiritual heart matter. Uh, so this is this is the wickedness of man, the wicked heart in the kings of Israel, basically displaying its separation from uh, holiness. It's opposition to holiness. So this isn't a matter of then having institutes as a bad thing, um, civil institutes or ecclesial institutes, or in this case, both. It's a matter of the heart. And that was always the problem. Even in uh, Old Testament theocracy in the divided kingdom, after the exile, when there, there was an attempt to uh, return to uh, the way of the Lord, but uh, they, it ended up becoming something that was a purely ethical concern, a, a, a mere moralism, a morality, a, a legalism, um, disconnected from uh, the, un the the heart matter, the understanding that they are to be holy according because God is holy, not just to be moral simply because that's just how the way things are. Um, so they're they're supposed to be holy because that was who their God is, uh, not be moral just because that's their institution, because that's just what their law says. But we do see in the exile, uh, the build up to the exile and in the exile itself, uh, we do see God preserving a remnant uh, of his faithful people. Uh, and we see in the prophets, we see a shift, uh, a look towards the future, towards the last day, as Bob Inc. writes in the bottom of page 137. They look beyond the limits of the nation because at that point they don't have a nation. 
but rather they start to see uh, more clearly the kingdom of God as it will be realized in the future, uh, the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord. They start to see something bigger. They start to see this kingdom coming into a more universal and higher realization than it had under theocratic Israel. Now, because this was all still uh, in the Old Testament period, uh, this was all still a foreshadowing. Um, and even as uh, Andrew had mentioned uh, th- uh, from Bob Inc., that uh, the prophets were were looking out at a distance, uh, that there was a lack of clarity. It was still a shadow. But this is where you have in the New Testament uh, the direct proclamation of the kingdom of God being at hand, uh, approaching uh, in as uh, John the Baptist says. And John the Baptist was just heralding uh, Jesus' own message uh, when uh, God himself comes, and the word of God, and word and wisdom of God comes, the founder of the kingdom, he goes and starts shining light on just precisely what this kingdom is, what it is, uh, what it does, what its essence is. Uh, Bobbing says there in that second paragraph, uh, about halfway down there on page uh, 138, he says, for Jesus, the kingdom of God was the purpose of all of his activity, the main content and central idea of his teaching, whose essence, expansion, development, and fulfillment were presented by him in the most variegated way, with and without parables. Moving outward from his own person, he established this kingdom in the hearts of the of his disciples. So, uh, in in a sense, there there is a manner in which Jesus Christ is the very uh, is is that content of the kingdom. Uh, he he is that the source of it. He is its founder, but he is something of its its benefit and substance in a manner. Uh, so simply, uh, whereas before you had that shadow, uh, and where 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 he says Judaism uh, had clothed, indeed had concealed, um, but even preserved the idea of the kingdom of God in it. For with Jesus, uh, entrance into the kingdom was tied solely to the uh, spiritual qualities of regeneration and of uh, of, of faith and of, of conversion, and that's precisely what the the announcement and proclamation of the kingdom of God is. Um, and this is what the charge that he gives uh, to his uh, disciples to preach the kingdom. It's this kingdom that you come in through regeneration faith and conversion and so how is that realized then after well initially as bob in christ the kingdom of god was realized in the church he goes on to say but to the extent that this kingdom entered into the world the two became distinct the contrast between church and world lost something of its sharpness the kingdom of god permeates the world and the world permeates the church its catholicizing impulse however surrenders neither term and reconciles the tensions through a process of give and take, and where necessary makes the ideal crystal clear in the face of the real. So, what we see is, although the church is the initial realization of the kingdom of God, the two are not so neatly and singularly identified as the same thing. Uh, There is something of a distinction between the church and the kingdom. We see this as it works out through history. We see in Roman Catholicism as it comes up, as it comes to rise, 
Uh, it becomes much more of an entity of political power. You see the rise of the papacy, and Sobavink writes that according to the Roman Catholic perspective, the Regnum Christi is identical to the Regnum Pontificum. So basically, correct me if my Latin's not right here, but basically the, the reign of Christ is the same as the reign of the Pope. And so the earthly kingdom of God is completely identical to the organization that is the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so what you're losing here is you're losing this idea of an organism. It becomes entirely institution. And Boving says of this Roman Catholic approach that the theocracy, the Jewish theocracy is imitated and Christianity is Judaized and ethnicized. And that's what we see form in the Middle Ages. And so they, they, you lose the distinction between uh, world and church then in that manner, uh, which is the, uh, from his previous paragraph that you had uh, quoted in its entirety, uh, Andrew, bottom of 138. Let's, let's, let's appreciate um, something of a, at least what comes out in English, what must be a, a, probably a pun here. He talks about the contrast between church and world lost something of its sharpness. The kingdom of God permeates the world and the world permeates the church. There's a, still a relationship between uh, a world and church, and though there is distinction. But he says, it's, Catholic, it's Catholicizing impulse, however, surrenders neither term. Um, the, him using that term of uh, Catholicizing, this universalizing impulse. <laughs> I think he's bringing out here in, in noting Rome's failure to distinguish world and church. <laughs> On the other end, though, uh, they're also not separate. There's this distinction, but not separate. There's still a relationship between them. Um, and that's what uh, really is going to be brought out, especially in uh, in the Reformation. He actually notes that the Reformation, what it did is, I like this word he uses here, um, cleansing. Cleansing the conflating error the, the era of conflation of Rome in basically making the Roman system, the medieval system, a new Jewish theocracy. The Reformation cleansed Christianity of this conflation, of uh, this theocratic uh, Jewish pagan conflation. And he says that the Reformers once again viewed the kingdom of God in its ideal, spiritual, eternal character and declared in their distinction, not separation, between the visible and invisible church that here on earth the kingdom of God can never be perfectly realized in a visible, historically organized community. The kingdom of God does not come now uh, with an external appearance, but it's in us, uh, Luke 17 would say. It's, it's not... Uh, the kingdom of God is not is neither food nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. Uh, as benefits that are possessed and manifest now in His people, which are uh, not of this world, uh, rebirth, conversion, sanctification. Though occasionally we do get fleeting glimpses of the kingdom of God, it is not come now in its its expressly external appearance. And so we can't point at a single institution, even a single church or denomination uh, or anything, a, a particular gathering of people and say, there is the kingdom of God. It doesn't work like that. It's not an institution strictly. It's not something that we can perfectly quantify and uh, and identify in this age. Now, 
when talking about the Reformation, he talks about this introduction of the visible and invisible church distinction. And more or less, the kingdom comes to be identified with the invisible church. So those who, uh, you know, truly uh, are regenerate, who truly belong to Christ. But he he notes that one of the issues with that, one of the the difficulties with that is that in doing so, in introducing it in terms of this visible, invisible church distinction, there's a loss of this very deeply biblical terminology that's especially present in the prophets and in the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom. Uh, we get so concerned about the visible and invisible church, which these are important concepts, and we've talked about them before, but that we lose the fact that it is the kingdom that is in view. Right. And so in, in his uh, coming into dealing with the, the nature and the essence and whatnot of the kingdom of God, this relates back to uh, what he had begun with in, in terms of ethics, of what man should do, why he should do it, and how these things must relate to earthly things and heavenly things without ignoring one side or the other, without uh, falling into a trap of uh, of a materialism or an abstract spiritualism or without uh, conflating, as we had said a moment ago with, Ro- uh, with the Roman Catholic Church, conflating this institution in the world with the church entirely. What we've done here is we've introduced this idea of the kingdom of God in Bob Inc., uh, this is the basically what we've walked through is the introduction to this essay, The Kingdom of God, The Highest Good. And so Bavink has laid out some of the difficulties, the history, the biblical theology of the kingdom of God uh, to sort of diagnose and to sort of reveal to us the need to look at this issue and some of the problems that we've had in looking at this issue. And so... Uh, that's about all the time that we have for today. Uh, we hope that uh, this was uh, helpful, uh, that it was edifying as always, and um, that this will uh, cause you to uh, dive further into uh, this topic along with us, but uh, especially as we go throughout uh, Bobbing's um, various sections on this topic uh, that uh, we might follow along in uh, scriptural references as well. Uh, as he gives some very, very good and helpful ones. So until next time, Toadzines. Toadzines. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.